Blog Talk Radio. The Donaldson Files, Tom Donaldson, with a Christmas special show. We're going to uh, do something a little bit different. Last night we had our, like I say, ladies' night with a Christmas theme. And tonight I'm going to combine Christmas carols with Christmas stories over the next hour. And and I thought I'd do this, you know, and basically, basically I'm going to take some of the classic stories. I'm going to take some real-life stories and also some and also a biblical stories as well, dealing with the Christmas theme and the Christmas spirit. But before we go, I just want to again remind everybody that hey, if you want to have, if you have a Christmas story or something you want to talk about Christmas related, you can call 646-929-0130. Also, if you want to get we do have a website, a new website, the Bachelor News Radio Network dot com. And that's spelled Bachelor is spelled B A T C H L O R News Radio Network dot com. The Bachelor News Radio dot com. It's our new website. So and basically this website's got all of our shows. Um, including our new show with Gray Leopard Co. We have the Life Cafe broadcast, the Locker Talk, You and the Law, the Dr. Larry Show, and, of course, the Bassin News Radio Show. And you got past episodes, so you can basically click on, like, on the Donaldson Files, and you say, you know what? The show that was taped on December the 1st or December the 2nd, uh, you can go back and do that particular show. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on. So, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, Let me start with our first Christmas curl, followed by our first story.
On a crisp, clear morning 100 years ago, thousands of British, Belgium, and French soldiers put down their rifles, stepped out of their trenches, and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. In the 100 years since, this advent has been kind of a miracle, a rare moment of peace. Just a few months into the war, that would eventually claim over 15 million lives. But what actually happened on that Christmas day in, in Christmas Eve, we will just explore some more. Pope Benedict XV took office September, had originally called for a Christmas truce, whose idea was immediately rejected by all the leaders. It seemed the sheer miseries of daily life in the cold, wet, dull trenches was enough to motivate the troops to initiate a truce on their own. It means it's hard to pin down exactly what happened. There's a whole range of oral con- accounts, diary entries, and letters home from those who took part to make a virtually impossible truce as it took across the Western Front. To this day, historians may disagree with the historian on the specific. No one truly knew where it began or how it spread, but by some curious vestive magic, it broke out simultaneously across the trenches. Not less some two-thirds of the troops of 100,000 soldiers are believed to have participated in this truce. Most accounts suggest the truce began with a carol singing from the trenches on Christmas Eve. A beautiful moonlight crossing the ground, white almost everywhere. As Private Albert Moran of the 2nd Queen's Regiment recalled in a document later rounded up by the New York Times. Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade described it in even greater detail. First, the Germans were singing one of their carols, and then we were singing one of ours, until we all came up with, all call me you faithful. The Germans immediately began the same hymn in the Latin words, Adistes Fidelis. And I thought, wow, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations singing the same carol in the middle of a war. The next morning, in some places, the Germans emerged from their trenches calling out Merry Christmas in English. The Allied soldiers came out wearily at first to greet them, and others, German, held up the signs, you know shoot, we know shoot. Over the course of the day, troops exchanged gifts of cigarettes, food, buttons, and hats. The Christmas truce also allowed both sides to finally bury their dead comrades, whose body laid for weeks in no man's land in the ground between the opposing trenches. The phenomena took different forms along the Western Front. One account mentioned a British soldier having his hair cut by his pre-war German barber. Another talked of a pig roast. Several mentioned impromptu kickabouts with makeshift soccer balls. The truce was widespread, but not necessarily universal. Evidence would suggest in many places some of the firing continue. But in the course, it was only a truce, but not peace. Hostilities would return someplace later that day or in others, not until New Year's Day. And remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. One veteran from the 5th Battalion of the Black Watch, Alfred Anderson, later recalled in The Great Observer, it was a short piece, 
as the Great War resumed, it wreaked such destruction and devastation that the soldiers became hardened to the brutality of war. And while there were occasional moments of peace, and throughout the rest of World War I, they never gained, never again would they ever come to the scale of the truce, the Christmas truce of 1914. In many, in many ways, the story of Christmas was not exactly chivalry in the depths of war, but maybe a tale of subversion. When men on the ground decided they were not fighting the same wars as their superiors, when no man land, sometimes spanning just 100 feet, Enemies troops so close they could hear each other and smell their cooking. The commander of the British Second Corps, General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, believed this this proximity posed the greatest danger. The morale of their soldiers and told divisional commanders to explicitly prohibit any friendly intercourse with the enemy. In a member issued on December the 5th, he warned, Troops in the trenches in close proximity to the enemy slide very easily if not permitted, if permitted to do so in a live-and-let-live theory of life. Indeed, one British W. Ward, speaking in 1930, said, I then came to the conclusion I have very held firmly ever since that if we have lectured ourselves, there would never be another shot fired. A century later, this truce is remembered as a testimony to the power of hope in humanity in the dark hours of history. It has been immortalized and fictionized in children's novels like Michael Foreman's War Games and films like Joes Noel and Oh, What a Lovely War. And even in a controversial Christmas ad this year from Sainsbury, a British supermarket chain. To mark the 100-year Prince William unveiled a memorial on December the 12th. A metal frame representing a soccer ball, two hand claps inside. A week later, inspired by the truce, the British and the German Army soccer teams played a friendly match. And through the Christmas truce, there may be one off in the conflict, the fact that it remains so widely remembered speaks to the fact at its heart, it symbolized a human desire of peace, no matter no matter the circumstances.
Yes. Now we're going to read a portion of A Christmas Carol by by Charles Dickens. And we begin the scene where Scrooge, having been through all the spirits of the past, the present, and the future, and he finally goes back to accept the invitation of his nephew, Fred. We'll go into the scene of Bob Cratchit and the day after, as well as the conclusion. Where is he, my love, said Scrooge. Well, he's in the dining room, sir, along with the mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please. Thank you. He knows me, said Scrooge, with his hands already on the dining room lock. I'll go in there, my dear. He turned it gently, sidling his face in around the door. They were looking at the table. Keepers are always nervous on such points. Like to see that everything is right. Fred, said Scrooge. Dear heart alive. How his niece by marriage started. Scrooge has forgotten for the moment about her sitting in the corner with the footstool, or he wouldn't have done it on any account. Why, bless my soul, cried Fred. Who's that? It is I, your Uncle Scrooge. I have come to dinner. Would you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It is a mercy. He didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be hurtier. His niece looked just the same. So did Topper when he came. So did the plump sister when she came. So did everyone when they came. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office the next day and the next morning. And oh, there he was early. Only he could be there first and catch Bob Cratchit to coming in late. That was the thing he set his heart on. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was a full 18 and a half minutes behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him into the tank. His hat is off. Before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he was trying to overtake the nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in a custom voice as near as he could fake it. What do you mean, coming here or at this time of day? I am very sorry, sir, said Bob. I am behind my time. You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. If only but once a year, pleaded Bob, approaching from the tank. It should not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend, I am not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer. Therefore, he continued leaping from his stool, giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank, and therefore, I'm going to raise your salary. Now, Bob trembled and got a little nearly to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for a help in a straight race car. Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnest that could not be mistaken as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow. And I have given you for many a year 
of raise your salary, endeavor to insist your struggling family. And we'll discuss your affairs this afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking. Bishop Bob, make up the fire and buy another coal shuttle before you dot another eye. Bob Cratchit. End the story. For Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend and good as a master and as good as a man as the old, good old city knew. In any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world, some people laughed to see the adoration in him, but he let them laugh. And little heeded them. For he was wise enough to know nothing ever happened on this globe for good in which some people did not have their fill laughter in the onset. And knowing such a death anyway, he thought it was quite well they should wrinkle up their eyes and grin as had the badly and less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, but this was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with the spirits, but lived a total absence principle ever afterwards. And it was said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. And if any man alive possessed the knowledge, may he be truly said of us and all of us. Bless us, everyone. Again, if you want to comment on this show, you can call in at 646-929- 0130, if you have a Christmas story or a Christmas memory you want to share, again, that number is 646-929-0130.
And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, just a reminder that you can listen to this show and other great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. The Bachelor News Radio Network. And you can listen to all these great shows the Bachelor News Radio Show, The Donald's Files, The Dr. Larry Show, Locker Talk with Barry Bonds, You and the Law, The Life Cafe Broadcast, The Gray Leopard Cove. And the Bachelor News Radio Show, one of those great shows with your host, L.A. Bachelor, the founder of this particular radio network. The show discusses issues of race, politics, policing, injustice, inequality, religion, and sports that affect brown, black, and poor people negatively. You can listen every Monday, Thursday, live from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at blocktalkradio.com slash L.A-Bachelor. You can also, if you're interested in having a show or advertising, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. And again, don't forget, you can listen to this show and other great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. And now, a letter from Mark Twain. Dear Susie Clements, I have received and received all of the letters which you and your little sister have written me. I can read you and your baby sister jagged and fantastic mark without any trouble at all. But I had troubles with those letters in which you dictated through your mother and the nurses, for I am a foreigner and cannot read English writing very well. You'll find that I made no mistakes about the things in which you and the baby ordered in your letters. I went down your chimney at midnight when you were asleep and delivered them all myself. Kissed to both of you, too. But there were one or two small orders I could not fill because we ran out of stock. There's a word or two in your mama's letter which I took to be a truck full of doll clothes. Is that it? Well, I'll call you at your kitchen door about nine, but I must not see anybody, and I must not speak to anybody but you, you, and when the doorbell rings, kitchen doorbell rings, George must be blindfolded and sent to the door. You must tell George he must walk on his tiptoes and not speak, otherwise he will die someday. Then you must go up to the nursery, stand on the chair of the nurse's bed, put your ear to the speaking tube that leads to the kitchen, and when I whistle through it, you must speak in the tube and say, welcome, Santa Claus. Then I will ask whether it was a truck, truck that you ordered or not. If you say it was, I shall ask you what color you want the trunk to be. Then you must tell me every little single thing in detail which you want the trunk to contain. And then when I say goodbye and Merry Christmas to my Susie Clements, you must say goodbye to good old Santa Claus. I thank you very much. You must go down to the library and make George close all the door that open into the main hall, and everybody must keep still for a while. While I go to the moon, get those things, in a few minutes I will come down the chimney that belongs to the fireplace that's in the hall. If it's a trunk you want, because I couldn't get such a thing as a trunk down the nursery chimney, you know, if I should leave any snow in the hall, 
You must tell George to sweep it into the fireplace, for I haven't time. I do not have time to do such things. George must not use a broom, but a rag, else he will die someday. If my boot shall leave a stain on the marble, George must not wholly stone it away. Leave it there, always in the memory of my visit. And whenever you look at it, show it to anybody. You must let it remind you to be a good little girl. Whenever you're naughty and someone points to that mark, which your good old Santa Claus boots made on the marble, what will you say, my little sweetheart? Goodbye for a few minutes until I come down to the world, ring the doorbell, ring the kitchen doorbell. Your loving Santa Claus, whom people sometimes call the man on the moon. Now, this is Tom Donaldson of Donaldson Files with our Christmas special, in which I'll be reading selected Christmas stories, Christmas events to be interspersed with Christmas music. Also, if you want to have a Christmas, if you have your own Christmas memory you'd like to share with us, 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130. And don't forget our website is the Bachelor News Radio Network.com, where you can listen to our Donaldson Files and other great shows. For example, the Dr. Larry Show, 
with Dr. Larry Federa, who takes a look at politics from a conservative perspective than the Trump and the end of the Trump era and going into the beginning of the Biden era. Listen to him live every Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Block Talk Radio LA Bachelor. And if you're interested in having your show or advertising, email us at labachelor40gmail.com. Again, go to the bachelornewsradionetwork.com, and all of these great particular programs will be available. It's a wonderful life. It's one of the great classic movies of Christmas, and it begins with the story of George Bailey. George Bailey has spent his entire life giving himself to the people at Bedford Falls. He's always longed to travel, but never had the opportunity to prevent, never had, in order to prevent a rich skin flint, Mr. Potter, from taking over the entire town. All that has prevented him from doing so is George's modest building and loan company, founded by his generous father. But on Christmas Eve, George Uncle Billy loses the business $8,000 while intending to deposit it in the bank. Potter finds the misplaced money and hides it from Billy. And when the bank examiner discovers the shortage, later that night, George realized he would be held responsible and sent to jail and the company collapsed allowing Potter to take over the town. Thinking of his wife, their young children, and others he loved, would be better off if he was dead if he thinks about suicide. The prayers of his loved ones result in a gentle angel named Clarence coming to earth to help George with the promise of earning his wings. He shows George what life would be like if he had never been born. Was a young man, and again, living in Belford Falls, never did the things he wanted. The first incidence that Clarence sees is that at the age of 12, George sees his older brother's life in an accident while playing on an ice-covered pond. George lost hearing in his left ear due to being in the icy water. Shortly after working part-time in Mr. Gower's or he prevents a mistake of prescription from fatally poisoning someone. Angry at the neglected delivery, however, Gower, drunk in the sorrow of his recent death of his son, beats George until the young boy explains the situation. Upon testing the medicine and realizing the boy had averted a horrible mistake, Mr. Gower, the pharmacist, is profoundly remorseful and grateful for George, who vows to keep the error to himself. The two little girls in George's life at that point is Mary Hatch and Violet Bick, who seem to be competing for his notice. Now, George's father ran a, including his uncle Billy, ran a small building alone that financed mortgages for the people of Bedford Falls. They faced a difficult battle with the evil and wealthy Harry Henry Potter. The wheelchair-bound Potter is on the board of directors of the building alone holds much of his back that's along with everything else in town. Charging exorbitant rent of his own apartment and would love nothing more than take Bailey's company out of business. 
Now, George originally wanted to go for begin adventures after college. While he had respect for his father, he was there now that thwarted his plan. So George went to work in the building and loans for a few years after graduating with the anticipation that Harry would take over when he graduated and George would go on to the European tour, go on to college. But his father had a fatal stroke, and George ended up taking over the whole thing, giving up the European tour. Father's attempts to liquidate the B&L, the only thing that stopped it was George himself. So he gave up college, gives his college money to Harry, and at that point, after Harry graduates, he would take over the, BN, the, the uh, building and loans, and George would go to college. But when Harry returned, having married Ruth Dinkin, and Ruth's father offered him a job in New York, upstate New York. He first, Harry thought, thought about turning it down for George's sake, but George could not bear the cost of the opportunity, for he had no choice but to stay. Mary would marry Mary Hatch after a great, difficult introduction. And then, and then, and after they get married, they were about to go on the honeymoon with $2,000 to save. But the crisis, a banking crisis occurs. Potter takes over the bank, guarantees the B&L loans. And the customer is in a panic and they're attempting to go to Potter's bank. But the only way he saves the situation is take the money needs out of his honeymoon. And they basically and, – and unfortunately, though, the rest of the story is that the cabbie and Bert Ward Bond and the, and the police officer arranged for them to have a cut-rate honeymoon on their house. They serenaded newlyweds from outside the ring. But years later, we provide an affordable home to the people of Belfort Falls, and this would include the home of the local tavern keeper and his family. Now, Potter's disturbed by all of this because they're taking business away from his own apartment business and attempts to bribe George into working for him, but it doesn't work. So George stays in Belford Falls, never leaving with his family. World War II comes and goes. Harry serves, heroically save an entire transcript, transport ship by shooting down two attacking airplanes. And he is rewarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. Could not necessarily go to war because of his ear. The ear that he lost his partial hearing because he saved Harry's life so many years earlier. Well, we know about the story. The $8,000 that gets lost. But the interesting aspect is that Clarence shows what would happen if George hasn't been. And we find out, for example, what would have happened. Things were totally different. For one, the tavern and the tavern owner became a sleazy dime. And the man, Mr. Martini, was nowhere to be found. He's owned by a bartender named Nick. It was very nasty and insulting. And interesting enough, while George may know Nick, Nick doesn't know who George is because Clarence, because he's all but invisible because Clarence, the angel, is showing what life would be if he didn't exist.
And we find that many of the characters who had a good life did. For example, Mr. Gower is a homeless derelict. In front of the tavern, it's disturbed when he sees, you know, the town totally different. He finds out that that Harry doesn't go to war, doesn't save the lives of the many of those same soldiers in World War II, because he died and drowned in that ice when he broke the ice, and so on down the line. What he finds is that Harry, the, you know, the death of Harry as a young man ended up in the death of every man on the transport that Harry saved and won his Congressional Medal of Honor. Mary Hatch, his wife, never married. There are no children. And having seen that life indeed would have turned out totally different for Bell's Falls, that he finds himself once again back to his land, back home where and when he comes home what he finds is this Mary comes home along with people led by Uncle Billy contrary to Mr. Potter's claim that they would hate him for losing the money it turns out that the world got around that George was in trouble financial trouble people that he had been so generous with who had contributed whatever they could provide dozens of people arrived with everything to cover the debt that was lost. And then the last scene, the whole crowd sings Hark the Herald Angels, and George finds a copy of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer with a brief handwritten note on the inner pages of an inside coat pocket. It reads, Dear George, remember no man is a failure who has friends. Thanks for their wings. Love, Clarence. This is one of the great movies because, quite frankly, it's a movie that in the end says that every little act of kindness, every act of forgiveness, when those acts of kindness do not occur, those acts of forgiveness do not occur, history itself is changed. What George found out in this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is that he made so much difference to so many people that he could never fully, truly understand what it is he truly contributed to Belford Falls and to the world.
Yes, this is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files with our Christmas special with Christmas stories and Christmas interspersed with Christmas hymns. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw him, you would say it even glows. And all the other reindeers would laugh and call him names. And they would never let poor Rudolph join in other reindeer games. Well, we know the end of the story. But this was, and for those who may not know, this was originally written at the request of Montgomery Ward Department Store Company. The story was given out free to two million children who visited this brother-in-law. Johnny Mark saw the popularity of the story, wrote the song we all come to know and love. From that point, the story takes off, and we now can't imagine our best Christmas without our best bud, Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer who would save Christmas. Again, and for more, if you want to listen to this show and other shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network, don't forget the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. You can listen to this show and other great shows, including, for example, Locker Talk with Barry Bonds. Barry, where you can hear about the latest NFL stars of tomorrow today. Listen to Barry every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at blocktalkradio.com slash la-bachelor. And if you want uh, interested in advertising on this show and others, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. And now we're going to continue with the Donaldson Files Christmas special uh, with stories interspersed with Christmas carols. It was the sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled and sane, and tried to discern what sort of greeting what this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a child, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will become the son of Mosai. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how would this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit would come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has already conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to his plan. And the angels departed.
Yes. As we continue our Christmas story, Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved that to divorce her quietly. But he considered these things, and behold, an angel the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that is conceived for her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the prophets spoken. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And when Jesus and when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to the son, Jesus. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angels of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shame, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, before behold, I will bring you good news. Great joy that would be for all people. For unto you are born in this day a, in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign. You will find the baby wrapped in a swaddling cloth, cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, multitude of the heavenly, most praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest among those who he pleased. And when the angels went away from them unto heaven, the shepherds said one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened. For the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they were known to the saying that this would be told concerning the child. They heard and wondered at all what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured all of these things, pondering in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God. And at the end of the day, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given.
Yes, this is uh, the Donaldson Files, Tom Donaldson, wishing you and all a Merry Christmas. And welcome once again. For having a wonderful and Merry Christmas. Again, once again, wish you all a wonderful and merry Christmas. And remember that tomorrow is Christmas Eve, the celebration of Christmas Day itself. And maybe to a memory to repeat what was said. That he further When you hear that trumpet, you know it's the Dr. Larry show on the Bastard Pad Network. And uh, good good, uh, good evening, everyone. <clears throat> we are going to uh, be talking about something considerably less dramatic than the Mafia. Uh, And my opening uh, remarks are going to be uh, regarding Republicans in the secular city. This has to do with the fact that the uh, 2016 update of the 2010 U.S. uh, Census shows that the current distribution of the population of the United States is over 80% urban, and uh, less, just a little more than 19% rural. And frankly, <clears throat> this uh, this is a fact that uh, has a great deal of uh, potential importance for the survival of the Republican Party. And uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight uh, to begin with. And uh, we... Um, the on its face uh that idea of the or that demographic of the distribution of the United States population sounds very much like the death knell of the Republican party so let's talk about some of the differences between urban and rural uh world views and realities first of all city folks live in densely populated areas While this factor has many advantages in terms of employment and schooling, shopping, transportation, etc., it also presents many threats. There are threats to privacy, there's crime, there's threats to traffic, from traffic and general proximity of government uh, in schools and the police, regulations, zoning, and so on that make some level of government an ever-present factor in almost anything a city person may want to do. In contrast, rural folks generally have a lot of room to live in. 
and this allows them a high degree of privacy and keeps their connection to government minimal, mostly uh, for emergencies. So that has an impact on personal freedom versus the presence of government. Any changes a city person may want to advocate, whether in traffic uh, patterns or your child's school or the place you vote, building a house, making a uh, development, any other kind of development, it, it requires that you must convince other people to join you or you don't, you won't win. So that means organization, and that means publicity, money, and time are key components to change. Rural folks have many changes in their lives without anyone's permission. Their privacy begets a high degree of personal freedom. And some of the advantages of urban uh, life are proximity to medical and social services, uh, whether hospitals or shopping options, including uh, economically indexed stores and entertainment, cultural events, ballparks, and a myriad of other opportunities. Rural locations, however, offer few of these amenities as a rule, and some of these deficiencies are critical, particularly shortages of medical facilities. Then, of course, there are other types of things like religion. The farmer lives close to nature and witnesses every day the power and wonder of life, growth, weather, birth, and death. For the farmer, faith in God becomes a pretty obvious explanation of these mysteries, and religion provides a way to uh, have fellowship uh, with other people who uh, have the same kind of insight. The city dweller is surrounded by works of humans, whether physical buildings, highways, and artifacts, or the power to change which resides in humans, whether political power or judicial or financial. People in the city are removed from the wonders and mysteries of nature by layers of human power, and these, this power must be appeased in order for life to proceed. Since religion does not directly provide answers to these most pressing problems of daily city life, the importance of religion is often compartmentalized and even downgraded, sometimes to oblivion. So let's take an example. Let's, let's talk about guns. City people tend to see guns as a threat, since the only times they would usually be exposed to guns would be in the commission of a crime. It seems obvious to them that outlawing guns would reduce criminals' opportunities to procure and use guns for their nefarious purposes. The observation that can be made that says that uh, criminals will always find a way to get a gun, whereas the ordinary citizen could not find a gun, um, is uh, somewhat spurious in their minds because few ordinary uh, citizens have guns anyway. So outlawing guns wouldn't change their, situa their uh, situation very much. And it might limit casual crimes, at least, with guns. So why not do at least one thing to try to limit crime?
So the farmer and the and the uh, hunter find this idea ludicrous. To them, guns are tools of protection of livestock from predators, hunting meat for the enjoyment for enjoyment or for necessity, and they're just part of life. The rural people react to calls for outlawing guns as a personal freedom. So for the next. Uh, 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 for the other, the rest of this uh, opening statement, we will take a break. And um, this is the uh, Dr. Larry Show on the uh, Bachelor Pad Network. So we suggest that I you... I never uh, get the flu. We suggest that you uh, I watch... I never get the Shit. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Tom. All right. <laughs> I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So you're listening to the uh, Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor Pad Network. Uh, we were talking about the difference between uh, rural and uh, city life in relation to political positions. So what? let's uh, do a summary here. Uh, some of the key issues are the Republican Party stands for personal freedom. It's one of the major things that uh, define the uh, political posture of uh, the Republican Party, at least it's supposed to. And the Democrat response increasingly is the majority rules. And this includes uh, attacks now on the uh, on the Electoral College and the two-senator system uh, for the United States Congress. Republicans favor a strong national defense. Democrats favor a nominal military, and they have a an imaginary defense. They, they consider the, the military threats are relatively controllable and imaginary. And um, so we have, uh, so they, uh, they, they tend toward isolationism. The Republicans are committed to the free market capitalism, and um, Democrats want socialist economic systems, uh, which are tightly controlled by the central government. So the conclusion is that today the Democrats are the party of the secular city, and Republicans are the party of rural America. Luckily, there's plenty of time in the in the uh, there's plenty of room in the middle. So we would like to. Uh, so we're talking about uh, we're this is the Dr. Larry show on the Bachelor Pad Network, and um, we would like you to listen to the Bachelor Pad show, which is hosted by L.A. Bachelor & Company. 
and uh, listen for sports, politics, social economic topics discussed from a social and racial standpoint every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. You listen live at 646-929-0130 or online at blogtalkradio.com slash L.A. Bachelor. And the podcast of every show is on the bachelor at the uh, bachelorpadnetwork.com. And each show is uh, available uh, virtually within minutes of its conclusion. So this is this is the Dr. Larry show on the Bachelor Pad Network. So to finish our opening statement, the cruel question is can how can Republicans compete? First of all, it seems to me that we the commercial that they ought to be able to have a um that, that they need to wake up and, and see the challenge. After the, the 2001 and 2016 elections for president should have been a wake-up call because they both depended on the Electoral College to win. And we're getting more and more uh, uh, discussion from and uh, opposition to the Electoral College, basically from uh, people that want uh, the... They want the rule of the of the majority. So in practical terms, let's take a look at the Obama playbook and formulate a platform containing solutions for each of the urban constituencies, blue-collar workers, unions, suburbanites, women, blacks, Hispanics, evangelicals, and the gay contingent. Much of this work was uh, stunt begun by Ronald Reagan with the workers and George W. Bush with Hispanics and revived by Donald Trump with evangelicals. But the current alienation of the black community from Donald Trump must absolutely be overcome if there is to be any future in the in the uh, Republican Party. The, uh, the black community is ready to be com- converted because they've been abandoned by the Democrats for a generation. Trump Trump has the right idea. What do they have to lose? But they must be invited to join. Where where is the black Republican caucus? Where are the leaders of black Republicans? Herman Cain, Robert L. Johnson, Charles Payne, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Denzel Washington, and many others. Somebody has to talk to them. Somebody has to make them feel welcome. And the final thing is that the communication capabilities of the Republican Party seem to be in need of overhaul. The first step is to come up with the right message. This requires a city skill of organization. Somebody has to reach out to all the different constituencies, identify their needs and hopes, find spokespeople, get them together, and develop meaningful messages. Secondly, outreach to these communities has to be developed and executed. Republican clubs started and so on. There are thousands of people in the party who know how to do all these things, but they have to be energized. So the bottom line is Republicans have to get focused and get going. We cannot wait for an Abraham Lincoln to come along after the dissolution of the Whig Party, 
which went into history and never returned. And we, the uh, uh, remnants rallied around a new leader, Abraham Lincoln, and they formed the uh, the current Republican Party. So that's the message of the opening statement, which is a little bit longer today than usual, but it's a little bit more critical than some of the other points that uh, <laughs> that we have talked about in, in the past. So I have as uh, as my uh, one of my hosts today is the one of my my colleague uh, Tom Donaldson, who has a lot of experience in the sort of uh, grassroots aspect of uh, uh, candidates and and the party building. And uh, Tom, um, what would you uh, how would you react to what we've been talking about? Well, let me yeah let me let me start off with this way. I mean. You know, you used. We should also remember the urban side is separated between urban and suburban. So, yeah. about forty, yeah, you know, forty-seven percent of the votes that we came in the last election came out of the suburbs, which both Republicans and Democrats split forty-nine forty-nine. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, then you have the urban side, which is about uh, say thirty-two, thirty-three percent, and then your rural is about twenty percent. And as you notice, I mean, if you look at it from a perspective where, okay, the, the the political left and the Democratic Party has the urban side in very, you know, you know, they win the urban side fairly easy. Republicans are winning the rural side very easily. The battleground is going to be on the suburban side. Um, and, and I'm also kind of thinking of it this way, too. An example, in Chicago, 150 people are leaving the city every day. Many of them are minorities. So you're seeing some, so this suburban side does include minorities moving up the economic ladder. So, you know, that's all of your dynamics now. Yeah, the, the, but the, the Census Bureau does uh, consider suburbans a subset of uh, urban. Well, yeah, it, it may be true, but it's still, yeah. I mean, from a political point of view, I separate them for a simple reason because there is a demarcation. Uh, and if you ask any suburbanite, you know, if you live in Overland Park, Kansas, they're going to say I'm from Overland Park, Kansas. Of course, they can also say I'm from the Kansas City area, but uh, the reality is, it is there is a separate political aspect that comes into that. I view them as separate. I view the urban and suburbs as separate. And maybe that's so what do we do? Certainly from a, well, it, it, let, me throw, let me put it in this capacity. Uh, I'm going to take two senatorial candidates and look what they did and contrast it. Uh, Josh Holling was able to do the following. He won the suburbs by nearly... You know, like 56, 57%. He was able to make inroads among minority. He took about 45% of Hispanic votes as an example. He, and he cleaned up in the rural area. So what he did, in effect, was expand the Trump coalition by recapturing a good portion of the suburbans who, you know, let's say, deserted Trump in 2016, 
and who pretty much deserted Trump in a lot of blue states. Uh, Marsha Blackburn did the exact same thing. Now, and Marsha was kind of interesting in this regard because she, you know, you know, she was not the most well-liked candidate in that race. You know, well, you know. In fact, Phil Bresden was a, you know, when you look at the favorable and favorable, you know, they viewed him more. The voters viewed him more favorable. He was a former Democrat with a moderate reputation, but she essentially did the same thing that Josh Hawley did. She was able to reach out into the suburbs, recapture some of the suburbanites that didn't vote for Trump in 2016. Uh, she was able to do like fairly well. I mean, she got 12, 13% of black voters. She got 45% Hispanic voters and she cleaned up in the rural areas. So, and she talked about those bread and butter issues. And in the case of Tennessee, she had the advantage where Trump is still popular. And she would basically say, I'm the person who's going to carry the Trump agenda that benefits you. So there was the bread and butter going into that aspect. And there was an appeal that she did beyond the traditional, and certainly Josh did as well. They were successful candidates. Yeah, yeah. And you contrast that with so you think other it's, candidates. It's, yeah. So you're saying that it's, it's basically a matter of um, can, can, the campaigns and the way the campaigns are, are handled. Well, I'm going to say in this case, I mean, in this case, yes. You know, I, you know, in my, you know, the. You know, in my book of 2016, you know, about the 2016 election, one of the candidates that I looked at and studied, and I was part of the camp, you know, I was, our super PAC was involved in Wisconsin, was Ron Johnson. Now, you made a very interesting point about minority. Well, Ron Johnson had a, a project called Project Joseph. And essentially what that was, he's a former he's a, you know, businessman. He would go in, work with black churches, and one of the things he did is he would teach young black, you know, about job interviews, improve their skills, talk about business. Here's what you need to do to move forward. This is what you need to do to get a job. And they would do the basic things. And it was part of a program, you know, that he designed with black pastors. In other words, he showed up in their neighborhood. Uh, and, and that, to me, was, like you, you made an interesting point. You know, he showed up in the neighborhood. And when you do that, you're going to get some additional support. And what she did, he he got 13, 14% of the black votes. He also did well among Hispanics. But part of it is that, you know, during those six years in between the elections, he's still knocking on their doors. And, and it makes a big difference. Well, we still have the the fact that, that – um the, the 2001 or 2000 and 2016 elections both depended on the electoral college for president. Um, yeah. So is the answer then that we get presidential candidates that go to that do all this um, groundwork? Well, I mean, yeah, I, well, let me, let right me, now, the, the, the right now, the yeah. Republican Party does not have a good reputation among among certain minorities, as, well, a, as right. a whole, and, anyway. Yeah, but, you know, here's the thing that comes into play. You're, you're absolutely correct, but, the, you know, but they, again, as I'll, I'll make the point clear, is like Juan Johnson, 
you know, he showed up in their neighborhood. He knocked on their door. He said, hey, look, this is what I'm doing for you. And in some ways, and, and, and one of the things, you know, one of the things we did as a group, because we did some minority outreach in the last election in three different states or four different states, and one of the ads that we did, we said, look, you know, look at what where you've improved over the economic. We talked about the fact that black voter, you know, black voters were seeing the lowest unemployment in, you know, probably in historical records, very similar to Hispanics. And our point would be, we have a game plan that's working for you. The other side promised things we provided, we produced. And and then, like I say, it takes a you know, and, and, and maybe the point you know we were starting very briefly about the prison reform, you know, at the beginning of our show, and I think this will be a very interesting test because uh, this does affect a lot of the minority community, you know, the prison reform because if you look at the percentage of blacks, and it's you know, in particular in jail, yeah. compared to other population, and so what you got is an effort to sit back and say, okay, we're going to do something to reintegrate you into the community to take advantage of the opportunities we're producing for you right now. Well, hold that thought. This is the Dr. Larry show on the bachelor pad radio network. And you're listening. Uh, and we are also talking tonight about various um, of our programs on the, on the network, which are, Equally interesting to uh, to Tom's show and my show. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, Tom's show is the uh, Donaldson File with Tom Donaldson and Coco Konsky. And uh, they listen for politics from the Republicans and the Democrats' standpoint, as well as topics dealing with entertainment and other topics, uh, including the Mafia. Listen every thir- Tuesday and Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time at the blogtalkradio.com slash L.A. Bachelor, or call in at 646-929-0130. And the podcast of each program is on at the bachelorpadnetwork.com. So we invite you to listen to our network as much as you can. This is the Dr. Larry Show, and we are also on the uh, the same uh, network that uh, that the uh, Donaldson file is on, and we uh, certainly invite uh, all the comments that uh, that you uh, may wish to give us. And so you are listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor Pad Network, and we're talking to Tom Donaldson, who is a uh, practitioner of practical politics, and um, we're getting his view on how how the Republicans can compete in the coming uh, generation for the votes of the people, not only in the rural areas, but also in the uh, cities and the suburbs. So I take it, Tom, that you're you're thinking that the main... um, the main thrust of the Republican effort ought to be in terms of uh, the campaigns for for the various uh, levels of government office. 
See, I'm I, I'm a little more concerned about the about the overall uh, the overall profile of the of the of the party it, because it seems like every time the the Republicans want to do something, they have to come out and almost uh, apologize for for why it is they want to uh, they they want whatever it is we're we're trying to do. Like for example, tonight right now we're talking about. Uh, immigration and and border uh, security. Well, well, there 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 really isn't there isn't any unanimity apparently in the electorate um, on. I guess nobody's seriously um, contradicting the the idea that we should have border security, but they sure don't agree on what what the uh, the way the way to go about it. But anyway, what do you think about the the, the national uh, image of the of the party and, and whether that should be attacked and changed or or not? Well, I mean, isn't, here's it, the thing. isn't it important? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the biggest problem we do have, you know, with, with the image side of the equation, this is the one thing we we did a series of polls in uh, surveys with different pollsters and looking at certain questions and. The, the one problem the Republicans are going to have is the very same problem Democrats had in 2016, is you're going to have a candidate that's not going to be personally liked. You know, when we ask people, do you approve, let's say, of Donald Trump's personal behavior, as an example, 30% said yes, 70% said no. And when we looked into the numbers, like, for example, are you a Trump voter? Trump voters themselves, at least one out of every three, were did not approve of his personal behavior. So when you got one out of every three of your own supporters looking at you, uh, viewing you in that capacity, you know, you've got a serious problem at the top of the ticket. And the question comes into play is how do the Republican Party, you know, because the other thing we found is that a lot of the issues, voters agreed with us. And you, and certainly it didn't help. And, and you got to remember, we didn't keep the Senate and added two seats to the Senate. So there was a demonstration there, and if you look at those king candidates who succeeded, and why they succeeded is they were able to focus on issues. Uh, well, in, yeah, but they also issue. had they also had yeah. the, the president come in and do those big rallies too, which kind of well that has yeah, offset some they, of the uh, negative. Yeah, well, you know, you're absolutely right, but again, those are states where, you know, like you're absolutely right. But my point I'm going to say here is that you know, what, what the biggest challenge for Republicans are going to have is basically say we're the party of opportunity and we're the party of the middle class because we have become the party of the middle class. You know, one of the things that Trump was able to do is you know what we call the Reagan Democrats are now the Trump Republicans, and many of the same group of people. And you got to remember, there's like five million white voters who voted for Obama, many of them blue collar, who ended up voting for Donald Trump. And so the you know, and so that's and so you have to look at it from that perspective that there is a coalition being formed that can be potentially formed. The problem that as I see it is that we have yet to figure out a way to expand that coalition because about two or three million suburban Republicans who voted for Romney turned around and voted for Hillary Clinton. So 
So how you, how does you, the Republican yeah. Party get become uh, competitive in uh, in California and Oregon and and Washington State yeah. on the one side, and then on the New York and New Jersey, and now increasingly yeah. New England on the other side? That's a good question. In, in the case of, and it's, an, it's a good question, and I don't necessarily have the perfect answer, but I would say the first thing, in the case of California, the Republican Party is virtually a non-existent entity other than a name only. Uh, and they basically, on the congressional side, pretty much you saw Orange County essentially go blue. But I would say to you, if I was building that party back up, and it's going to be a longer process, you know, is that is when you start looking at California, uh, you do see that many of the counties, I mean, if you look at the different counties, you know, it's that rural breakup, that urban breakup you noticed, you know, worked in favor of the Democrats, even though, let's say, the Republicans took most of the counties, they were the rural counties. The question you have to come into is going to be on the suburban side. And it's going to be a little more difficult in California as compared to other states due to the fact that suburbans there tend to be more liberal to begin with. Uh, but you have to get, I mean, the, the question you have to throw back is this. The Democratic Party is pretty much in, is the party of the hard left in California. You have a, a net migration from the state. And you're seeing taxes go up. You're seeing the infrastructure crumble. You're seeing the school crumble. And basically, if I'm a Republican, I'd be looking at practical things. We're going to be the party that builds roads, not silver bullets that you've got billions of dollars and created a metro train that goes 200 miles. We're going to be the people who build the roads that people outside in the suburbs and in the rural areas travel on. Uh, we're going to be the people who build at the water reservoirs. Uh, in other words, we haven't have gotten very far. We haven't gotten very far with that so far. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, that's well. First of all, number one, you've not had any concerted effort in those areas. Why? Where the Republican Party, and that's you know, as I stated, it's the party itself is becoming a more and more. It basically has to be rebuilt on the ground floor. The other problem you have to remember, they have a jungle primary. You don't, And it's very hard to build a party when you don't even have a primary to nominate your candidate. You have a jungle primary where essentially the top two who finishes run. And, it, uh, and, and for certainly in the case of California, uh, you had two Democratic senators running against each other. The original goal, you know, was for us, you know, was when they had the general apartment, the original goal was, hey, we're going to make more moderate candidates and and less radical left or radical right candidates. It's turned out basically the entire, it's turned out that that has not happened. In fact, you're seeing more and more radicalization of the left in a lot of these elections. So the question is, the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out how to get the top two. Of any of these uh, races, I but mean, two we're the, shut out. Two of the most yeah. most popular um, re, uh, Demo- uh, politicians in in recent California history were uh, movie actors. 
You know, Reagan and Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And that's not that long ago with Schwarzenegger. No. And but the difference between Reagan and Schwarzenegger is this. Reagan was interested in building the party and building an infrastructure to build the party. Schwarzenegger was a celebrity who did not work on the act particular side. And if you look at his administration, he ended up basically surrendering to the Democratic Party for all intents yeah. and purposes. So, yeah, and, but and nevertheless, he did get point. elected. Yeah, he got elected. And But he, what did he do with the election? You, when, you do have to be effective once you become governor, once you get elected. And that's, you know, he did, in many ways, fail to do the basic jobs. Namely, running and cut, you know, well, running the state, but so that's. But on the final analysis, is that you know, you have to build a party, and it's very difficult to build a party when you don't have that primary where you can get candidates nominated to run for office. Uh, I mean, when Dianne Feinstein is facing another Democrat, <laughs> it's very hard to build. Yeah, it's very hard to get excited about election if you're a Republican on, on the Senate side of the equation. Well, hold that and thought. If it wasn't, yeah. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor Pad Radio Network. And we're uh, talking to, uh, tonight about the uh, some of the really great programs that we have on our network. For the latest news on NFL players who were drafted from a small school or historically black college or university and are now making an impact on the NFL, tune to the Locker Talk with Barry Barnes every Friday night, uh, Friday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You can listen to blogtalkradio.com slash L.A. Bachelor, or you can call the telephone number 646 or listen to the the podcast if you missed the show on thebatcherpadnetwork.com. So you're now listening to the Dr. Larry Show, and it's abbreviated tonight because of our our scheduling changes with between my my good buddy Tom and. And myself, so we will um, proceed with Tom. Uh, we're now talk. We're, I, I'd like to change the subject just a little bit, um, sure. uh, because uh, it occurred to me as <laughs> as I was putting this show together that we're actually this is the last show that uh, I'm going to have uh, before Christmas, and. Uh, I've been looking around at the, uh, the the commercialization, shall we say, of Christmas, which started out, as we know, as a religious holiday, and I'm just wondering what what's the future of Christmas. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, I want to put it this way. Uh, I think the Chris, the demise of Christmas as a religious holiday. Um, is overrated. I think you're always going to have that religious side to it. There is that religious aspect to our personality as a nation. And while you have the commercialization of, you know, Christmas, 
I don't think the religious side is ever going to be uh, disdain. Uh, let me give you. Uh, I, I can put it in this way. You know, I, you know, I've noticed that you know when I've gone to church on Sunday. Every Sunday for the past three weeks, it's been more and more crowded. I mean, you literally can't find a. You know, I mean, the last time I, you know, the, the two Sundays ago, I barely I got to the last parking spot. I almost oh. to this time this week I was parking on the grass. <laughs> My goodness. So, yeah. So I, 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 I just don't buy into the aspect that Christmas itself is going to die away. Uh, I, I think there is that evangelicals. You know, you know, when I used to use evangelical, I'm doing it in a more broader sense. But there's a, still a significant Christian side. To uh, the American personality that still exists that won't necessarily be wiped out. And, and let me take it a step further. And, and now we're looking to do more research, but we've asked these questions, you know, about values, hard work, and God in your life type of deal. And we still find that a lot of Americans view those things as important, at least by a two to one margin or a three to one margin a two-to-one margin where, okay, you get a list of values we relate to, like hard work, perseverance, delayed gratification, belief in God. You know, you know, a large number of Americans still buy into that. So I'm just one of those more optimistic, I guess I'm more of an optimist on that side as opposed to a pessimist. Well, it you know, there are, there are, um, Really, some interesting uh, paradoxes, though. Um, there was a bishop in uh, a Catholic bishop in um, I can't. I think it was Oklahoma, if I recall, um, who uh, was uh, invited in to speak to uh, a class of uh, youngsters in, in the grade school age, and um, he told them the history of uh, Saint Nicholas and how that turned into Santa Claus and some of the parents were so upset that they they threatened to sue him <laughs> so um the, the not only the kids had never heard the the real story before but even the parents were were uh, they considered that uh uh anti Santa Claus and uh, uh something that they didn't want the uh their children exposed to um now that's just that's just one case, but I think there, I think that there's a lot of that sort of um, secular religion going on uh, relative to uh, Christmas. In terms, you know, people are doing people do a lot of good things, um, but, but I, like soup kitchens and and collecting uh, presents for uh, deprived children and and all these sorts of things, but. It's it's not exactly a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't think. Well, uh, uh, let me again. Uh, look, let me throw it back again. I, I I'm going to put it. You know, again, uh, in this way, uh, you, you're right. I mean, there is this commercialization that still exists, and I'm not going to deny that it doesn't exist. Well, what I am going to say is is that you shouldn't underestimate you know, the aspect 
that religion still plays a significant role. Uh, you, you, you think about the soup kitchens and the charitable side of the equation. I mean, about five, I mean, think of it this way. About 10, 15% of workers work in that charitable section on a day-by basis. And, those are, and that doesn't count the volunteers that come into play. I mean, literally about trillion dollars of the economy is based in the uh, charitable section of our economy. That's yeah. a significant portion of what goes down. So, yeah, I, I is my it religious? Would be, uh, yeah, I do. I think there's a lot of aspects of religion still there that exist, and sometimes you have of... to look under. You know, maybe the question is. Uh, is sometimes you have to look under the ground, maybe, or look beneath the big highways. You know, a friend of mine used to always say, like in history, you know, we look at the river that's flowing down, but we don't always pay attention to the people sitting in the homes on the on the side of the river. And sometimes we need to just sit back and look and do a little peeking at that. Uh, again, like I say, I I tend to be more of a optimist than I am a pessimist on that. Well, um, I'm now going to challenge um, our uh, beloved uh, program master here, because um, L.A. Batcher was telling us the other day that we do have some time that we can uh, actually uh, stay on the air uh, because of the uh, graciousness of our of our host uh, blog talk radio and um, LA are you there okay we are not going to do that <laughs> we um, so I think it's time then uh, with I was going to give LA a chance to talk to us about what the Republican Party really needed to do if uh, they were going to uh, uh, start com- converting people of his uh, persuasion that uh, that uh, have this uh, really hard, hard, uh, very negative impression of the uh, current president. Uh, but uh, we will have to leave that for another day, and. Uh, because of this, um, then uh, I think that Tom and I are probably, uh, we've uh, taken uh, the last couple of hours and uh, and our leader, our, re- our listeners are, um, uh, we hope are uh, uh, in, encouraged to go ahead and uh, try to uh, uh, have a very Merry Christmas and uh, Remember that there is a religious angle to it, and uh, make Tom a, uh, pr- a true uh, true prophet with his optimistic uh, view of the uh, re- relevance of religion uh, to the uh, commercial holiday that uh, Christmas has become. And uh, as for myself, um, I certainly wish everyone, and I'm sure join- Tom joins me, uh, in uh, wishing everybody a, a very happy holiday season. And we want to thanks again to Tom 
Donaldson, who uh, accepted our invitation at the last second to uh, join with us tonight. So, Merry Christmas.
before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. In my mind. I'm 
temptations.